Amen. Viktor Frankl was a Jewish psychologist living in Germany who was captured by the Nazis and put into a concentration camp where he watched all of his friends lose hope and either die through incredible malaise or be killed, tortured, and burned. Now, as a psychologist, Frankel was unable to turn off the part of his brain that understood human behavior and human suffering. And so he began to catalog his observations about hope and what kept people going. And he realized that anybody who could see mental picture of a future state, anybody who could imagine going home and opening the front gate to their lawn, anybody who could imagine embracing a loved one, anybody who could imagine what it was going to be like to get out of this hellhole and into a better future, even a normal future, those people had hope which gave them energy to keep on living. Once they had hope, then he realized they could do anything, even in the worst circumstances. And so he would talk about his fellow prisoners who could imagine going home, then finding the strength at crazy moments to, to laugh, to make jokes, to, to sing songs, to debate over ideas, even at some point to pool their resources and create a kind of hospital within the concentration camp to treat their fellow prisoners. Here's what Frankel had to say about all of this. The last human freedom is the ability to choose your attitude. In every circumstance, no matter the circumstance, everything you have can be taken away from you except your decision about who you're going to be. Well, I think that's a good word for us. It reminds me a lot of the Apostle Paul telling us in Romans 12 that we are going to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Reminds me of Jesus saying that, as a man, or pardon me, the Proverbs saying, as a man thinks in his heart, so he is. I mean, it, it's, it's a really biblical idea that the thing you can control when you can't control anything is yourself. And I don't know about you, but I need that reminder, like, a lot. I need it especially these days. I mean, you know, it's a hard lesson to learn. It's a lesson everybody understands, but, but few of us practice. And as I've been ruminating on this idea this week, I just, I keep remembering all the times that people have been totally dysregulated by really small, inconsequential things. Oh, I was going to go to a festival, but then it got really rainy, and they had to cancel it. And they let that be really you know, frustrating for them. Oh, I, I, I was going to go out to a party with some friends, but they forgot to pick me up, so I had to stay at home. And they start dwelling on this injury and the fact that they were forgotten on this missed opportunity and their attitude sours. Years later, they're still holding grudges. Well, there's a lot of things that you could be mad about. There's a lot of things that you can be disappointed about. Your daddy is never going to be the perfect daddy for you. Your baby daddy is never going to be the perfect baby daddy for you. There's not anybody that's ever going to get through your life without disappointing you. But you... While you can't control them, while you can't control the pandemic, while you can't control the economy, you can control your heart. You can control your thoughts. You can aim your thoughts. You can redirect your thoughts. You can fix your thoughts on good things. And if you can transform your thoughts 
You can transform your life. That's what we're talking about today. We're going to look in the book of Philippians, chapter 4. Let me read some for you right here. Rejoice in the Lord always, and I'll say it again. That was bad. And I'll say it again. That was good. Let your gentleness be known to all people. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Now, I've been thinking about this piece of the Bible a lot. It's a really famous piece of the Bible. It's a piece of the Bible that everybody likes. Nobody ever disagrees with it. We read it, and we go, oh, that's so good. But there's a big difference between understanding something and embodying something, putting it into practice, living it. This is a tough thing to practice. But if you just like it, if you just appreciate it when it's being read or when you see it, it's no better than a Hallmark card. In order for this to change you, in order for this to make your life better, you got to do the hard work. you gotta, you got to live with discipline and intentionality. You have to consciously commit to changing the way you think and the way you live in order for it to happen at all, in order for anything good to happen in you. And the good news, of course, is that God the Holy Spirit is empowering you and enabling you to change the way you think and change the way you feel. So I'm reading all this, and I'm, I'm sort of giggling because, you know, verse 6 says, be anxious for nothing. I don't know if you've ever experienced any anxiety, but I find it really helpful when somebody tells me, just stop. <laughs> oh, well, all right then. I'm sorry. No. So you read this and you go, well, Paul, that must be nice for you to say. What do you have to be anxious about? Then you remember Paul's story about being shipwrecked and beat up and thrown in jail, having his back broke, being stoned. And you go, well, all right, maybe, maybe, maybe you know about a thing or two. And I got thinking um, that actually this piece of the Bible has been supported by the absolute best psychological, philosophical, and theological research in the 20th century. There's a fellow by the name of uh, Patrick Sweeney. He wrote a book called Fear is Fuel, a great book. And in that book, he introduces us to something called the fear frontier. And he says, you know, when, you, when, you, when you're afraid, there's a whole spectrum of fears. Like there's abject terror. Like imagine going for a swim in the ocean, and then all of a sudden a great white shark swims by your face. You're going you're gonna to be terrified. Like, and, and something's going to happen in your mind. You're going to snap. You're going to be right in your amygdala. Your fight or flight response is going to be going crazy. I mean, you are terrified. But there are things that are less terrifying that are still part of the fear frontier. For example, you could be in a really stressful situation and not know how it's going to work out, and you could be afraid. Now, your mind hasn't snapped yet. You haven't, you haven't jumped out, out into your amygdala. You're, you're not losing your mind yet, but you're still wondering, am I going to lose my job? Is this vaccine trustworthy? Is my marriage going to hold together? Will I face humiliation or embarrassment? I mean, that, that's scary, and it's still part of the fear frontier. And then way at the far end, you know, you might have um, worry. Oh, man, did I turn off the curling iron? Is the coffee pot still on from yesterday? Uh-oh, I better check those things out. 
So what Sweeney wants us to know is that there's a whole range of fears. And if you're not careful, you will have the same chemical and emotional response that you experience during abject terror at normal apprehension. And your fear frontier will shrink so that even when you go, oh, I, I don't know how I did on that exam, you'll start to worry about that exam and fixate on that worry. That worry will go stronger and more compelling until your mind snaps and you're completely shatterbrained over something that really shouldn't trouble you like that. And so then the next time you take a test, you go, oh, no, I lost my ish last time. Now I'm really worried about the next test. And your fear frontier gets even smaller. So you can't even show up for the exam or keep yourself calm during the exam because you're afraid that the same thing that happened in the last exam is going to happen in this exam. So consequently, you don't show up for the test. Consequently, you fail the grade. Consequently, you just world just keeps getting smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. And Sweeney says, this is what happens when we're afraid and we opt out of scary things. What we ought to do instead is try and expand our fear frontier. So that when we realize, uh-oh, I'm, I'm feeling really anxious. This thing is really scary. I haven't been on a date in a few years. Now I'm going out with this pretty woman. I don't know if I look okay. Breathe. Notice these feelings that you're having. And then he suggests that you find something good to think about, which is another way of saying that the antidote to anxiety is gratitude. I don't know if I'm going to be okay on this date, but, but how, amazing that I, how amazing that I'm getting back in the game again. I mean, uh, I, might, I'm, I might not have all the cool, sexy guy moves that I used to have, but how amazing that through the power of the internet, I can find a willing victim and just get out there once, and the world is different now. She might even pay. This is great, you know, and by focusing on any good thing, you, you begin to, well, you, you begin to be brave, and when you learn to do it scared, your fear frontier expands. So consequently, you're your job is on the line and you're afraid, but your mind hasn't broke yet. You haven't jumped into your amygdala yet. You're not hyperventilating and you're not panicking because you've been training yourself to live with uncertainty. You've been training yourself that the Holy Spirit of God is more powerful than your anxiety. I mean, somebody smart one time told me that God didn't give us a spirit of fear, but of love and power and a sound mind. And that doesn't mean you're not ever going to be afraid. It just means that you don't have to let that fear control you. And as a technique, the Apostle Paul here is pretty spot on. Instead of focusing on your anxiety, do everything with thanksgiving. Rejoice in all circumstances. And you go, oh yeah, but David, this is really scary. Do you think it was scary for Victor Frankl in the concentration camp? I mean, if some guy way back then who didn't even have the benefit of his own research nor the power of the Holy Spirit can retrain himself to overcome his fears, don't, I mean, I think you got a shot. You got universe creating, world shaping, Holy Ghost power living inside of you. You got the weight of God's own words teaching you how to train yourself to think, to focus on possibility and opportunity with all that at your disposal. 
You don't think you can date again? Come on, you, you can't. It's time. It's time. It's time. There's scary stuff out there. I don't want to deny it. I don't want you to feel ashamed for it. I'm just saying there's an antidote to it. There's something more powerful than your worries. But, but you're never going to remember that in the midst of your worry. That's why you've got to do the hard work. That's why you've got to do the discipline. That's why you've got to devote yourself. You've got to get trained. Are you trained to run a marathon? Why don't you train to be a Christian? You train to get a new job so you know how to use the cash register. Why don't you train to be a Christian? It takes you 20 to 30 hours to get onboarded into a new position at work. It's going to take you at least 20 or 30 hours to get onboarded into a new way of thinking. But the payoff is immeasurable. To live without, well, to live uncontrolled by fear? Yes, yeah, sign me up. I'm ready for that. And I was laughing because this morning I was reading this book. I thought it was a book about creativity, so I was all excited. I was like, this is a fun thing to put in my brain before I get up there and preach. And one of my favorites, it was not a book about creativity. I was lied to. The first, like, five chapters go something like this. We've done so much damage to the earth. We won't have sharks anymore or whales or plankton. Soon we will starve from lack of seafood. What's worse is that the seafood we do have is eaten plastic, so we will slowly kill ourselves with the very materials we designed to preserve our food, to preserve ourselves. It's awful. Everything we do results in death. I was like, geez. I don't want. Unsubscribe. But then I started thinking, what if the book is right? Like, what if we're the last human generation? What if in your lifetime, everybody you know dies, and you're left like Will Smith wandering downtown Jackson with a puppy dog and a rifle watching out for zombies? I mean, what about that? What if it really is? What if this is the end of America? What if this is the end of a global detente? And World War 19 is about to erupt. Is there any possibility at all that you might experience anything other than depression? Yeah. Yeah, there is. Your marriage could fall apart, and there's hope for you. Your business could close, and there's hope for you. The world could get shut down again. No restaurants, no churches, and there's hope for you. The internet could go away, and there'd be hope for you. But in order for you to experience that hope, you got to learn the secret that Paul learned in prison. you got to learn the secret that Viktor Frankl learned in a concentration camp. you got to learn the, G- the secret that Jesus shared on his way to the cross. That there is something more powerful than your circumstances and you are not defined by your emotions. Because greater is he that lives in you than he that lives in the world. So come on, church. It's time. It's time now. It's time to rise up and be people who apply the good news in such a way as to be transformed by it. When we keep reading, uh, verse 5 has this, uh, this line in it that I don't like. I don't know about you, but sometimes I read the Bible and the things that I don't like, I just... I swear, I swear I've never seen them before. 
And then something will change in me, my circumstances, you know. I'll go through something, and then I'll go back and read the very same passage that I read 50 times, and, I, and all of a sudden I'll see it, and I'll go, oh, nuts. Verse 5 says, let your gentleness be known to all men. I don't want. I do. I, I, I mean, I'm gentle with my children. I'm sometimes gentle with my puppy. But I, gentleness is not something to which I aspire. Like, I don't have gentle days. Hey, Dave, you want to come out and play sports? No, no, I'm gentling today. Thanks, I appreciate that. Hey, man, we're going to go to a movie. You want to come? No, 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 it's my, uh, it's my self-care spa day. I'm just going to sit in the tub with some salt. Whatever it is. Do they put salt in the tub? I don't know. You can tell. I don't, I don't know gentle. I don't understand. But then I just keep thinking that right now, you know what? Gentleness is the new apologetic. And you know what that word means, apologetic? It's an intellectual defense for the Christian faith. That's what apologetics is. Apologeticists are people who stand up in front of large crowds of people and debate atheists or Muslims. They, they tell you why it makes sense to give your life to Jesus. They tell you why it makes sense to put your trust in the scriptures. They, they evangelize, sure, but mostly they break down the barriers that keep evangelists from being able to do their job. They're like pre-evangelists, intellectual evangelists. That's what apologetics is. And right now, the real apologetic is gentleness. Like, like the whole world's topsy-turvy right now. It's going to be until you die. Like it's not going to get more sane over the next, you know, 20 years. And, and I think a lot of Christian people have been looking at everybody else and responding to the topsy-turviness of our world in the same way, using the same strategy as everybody else. And we go, oh, you know what the world needs right now? They need my well-articulated opinion. You know what the world needs right now? They need some facts and some counterfacts to refute the opinions of the person who doesn't think the same thing I do. But we're not starving for lack of opinions. Think the same thing I do, which I say, knowing I'm up here holding a microphone sharing my opinion. What we're starving for is humanity, kindness, civility. Like, there's real power in gentleness. You ever been in a room full of people who are arguing? Could be in school, could be at Thanksgiving, could be at church. Sometimes church meetings go crazy. And everybody's clamoring to be heard and Everybody's convinced they're right. There's lots of pointing and shouting. In those environments, you know who has the most power? The person who walks alongside you, puts their arm around you and says, it's okay, man. I got you. And in the internet world, Christian people are called to gentleness. And I find that very difficult. Because I've been trained and I've been groomed to win arguments. And I'm good at it. But what I'm called to do now is love. 
love. To look out and recognize that because of their pain, people are lashing out unjustifiably in ways and in directions that make no sense. Like dying animals, they will bite the hand of the healer. And I'm not called to remind them how foolish that is. I'm called to keep healing. And so are you. I was in the ER a couple months ago visiting somebody from our church who was hurting. And it was in one of the weird times where you could be in the waiting room of the ER, you know, because that seems to keep changing. Um, and there was a, in, in the waiting room of the ER, there was a drug addict. He was pretty high, meth, whatever, and he'd being restrained by the security guards. And the ER doctor came out to talk to the addict and give him some bad news. The addict's girlfriend had OD'd, and they were able to bring her back, but she was going to suffer some long-term damage. So good news, she's not going to die. Bad news, she's not going to be the same. And the doctor instructed the security guards, okay, you can, you can let this man go. I want to have a real conversation with him. And the addict was, was weeping, and he was in the throes of his emotionality, you know. And the doctor told him the bad news, and the addict attacked him. Started throwing hands and scragging in the way that senseless people sometimes do. And the doctor just hugged him. He just hugged him until all the fury went out of the addict and he just wept. And I watched that and I thought, that's the kind of doctor I want to be. That's the kind of doctor I want to be. And it's so hard because it's not, it's not me. But it's not as though Jesus is telling me I have to become non-Dave McDonald-like No, God the Holy Spirit is telling me, no, Dave, there's a gentle version of Dave McDonald that is authentic, that is truthful, and is holy. And right now, you've got to figure that out. And I realize, oh, that's that's where i got to grow. That's where our church has to grow. That's where Christians have to grow. And so I was thinking about all this stuff, and I was, I was reading Julian of Norwich, um, a Christian mystic from several hundred years ago. She wrote a very famous book called The Divine Revelation of Love, in which she shared this prayer. And this is what I started thinking about in the ER. And she, she said, all is well. All will be well. And all manner of things will be well. Say that with me. All is well. All will be well, but all manner of things will be well. Is, will be, manner of things will be. And I thought, well, that's the promise in Philippians right here. It says you're going to rejoice because all is well. You're going to not be anxious, but instead live with gratitude because all will be well. And when you do this, the peace of Christ that passes all understanding is going to invade your heart and your mind. You won't understand it. It won't totally make sense to you, but you will be able to say, all is well, which is the fancy way of saying everything's going to be okay. 
All will be well. All manner of things will be well. Your health, your family. Somehow, God remains sovereign. So all's well. All will be well. All manner of things will be well. And it made me realize, at the end of the day, your only protection is peace. That's it. Because, like, you're going to go through some stuff. Maybe your husband leaves you. Maybe you lose your business. Maybe your, your job closes down. You're going to go through some stuff. And the only real protection you have in the midst of that is God's peace. Now, you're the one that has to know that. Because I don't know about you, but if you're going through some garbage, like if I'm going through a hard time, and somebody who's not going through a hard time says, it's okay, Dave. Everything works out. All things work together for good for those that love the Lord. I'm going to kick you in the nuts. That is what is going to happen. But, but if you're going through a hard time and you're the one that can say, all is well. And all will be well. And all manner of things will be well. That's faith. That's faith. That's faith. That's not trite. That's not glib. That is peace that passes all understanding. And I love that he says that's what's going to guard your hearts. Man, your heart needs to be guarded. You, I don't know if I can ever love again. I don't know if I'm ever going to find anybody ever again. I, I don't know if God will bring me back into relationship with my children. I just don't know. I feel so lost. I feel so alone. Why isn't anybody looking after me? Why isn't anybody reaching out to me? Hey, all is well. And all will be well. And all manner of things will be well. And you go, yeah, but Dave, don't you, don't you realize what's happening? I go, whoa. Take a minute. Aim your thoughts. Think about the privilege of the life you have been permitted to enjoy. Rejoice. Even if it feels like you're in prison. Because that's the thing you can control. All is well. Now, all will be well. And all manner of things will be well. Now, normally when I finish preaching, I like to pray. Helps me sort of downshift. Helps you have a moment to process. But instead, here's how I want to end. I just want us to say that prayer together. All is well. All will be well. All manner of things will be well. Let's say it again. All is well. All will be well. All manner of things will be well.